sub-series uh, that we are, a few of us are teaching through uh, intermittently as um, the schedule allows as uh, on the weeks that Jeff is not taking us through for Samuel. Um, we are walking through the book of James there. And this morning, we come to chapter 2, the epistle of James. And in connection with the end of chapter 1, chapter 2 of James really works as a whole to teach what true faith looks like in the life of a Christian. With our previous sermon from James, Greg helped us to see that pure and undefiled religion is evidenced in part by associating with the destitute and keeping oneself unstained from the world. James began in chapter 1 to make clear that being a hearer of the word only is simply not enough. One who claims to believe the gospel must be a doer of the word. The same theme continues into chapter 2, but with a clearly different charge as to what it means to be no mere hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. In our text this morning, James exhorts us to see that true faith in Christ necessitates that one love all types of people impartially. That's the the main idea of this passage. And this call of James in the passage before us offers a most sharp clarification for the Christian, which is that a response of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about not just freedom from sin, not just peace with God and hope of eternal life with Him, No, a response of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about a distinctively biblical paradigm. What I mean is, faith in the gospel brings a perspective, a view of the surrounding world that is not natural to the mind of man and is found only in the special revelation of God, His inspired, inerrant Word. These things in mind, let's read the passage together and allow it to inform our thinking on these things. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. In verse 1, James commands his brothers who he loves deeply, demanding they show no partiality. Yet, it's not a general command that he makes, so so as to promote some kind of mere moralism. James qualifies that command by adding the phrase, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is to say that faith in Jesus as the Christ has no connection to partiality. Or put a bit more bluntly, it's as though James is saying, brothers, if you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot hold on to any partiality of persons because the two are totally incompatible. This rebuke is what James spends the rest of the passage explaining to his audience and is one that we must receive from the Holy Spirit and heed today because this sin so easily ensnares the church. Yet as James goes on to show, partiality is inconsistent with both the gospel message and the God of the gospel. These being James' line of support this morning for his command not to show partiality, they will serve as our points of consideration as well. The apostle begins by showing that partiality is inconsistent with the gospel message. In explaining this, he sets up a hypothetical scenario. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what's important to see as we read this text is that in this scenario James sets up, he is intentionally using exaggeration to magnify the heart of what transpires when partiality is shown to those of wealth and disdain for the poor. That's not to say that these sorts of seats wouldn't have been offered to the individuals under consideration. He is using exaggeration, but remember... Uh, This was common practice in the first century for a crowd of people to sit cross-legged on the ground while they listened to a teacher who would have sat on a stool. It it was also not uncommon for an elevated seat or or like a chair or a bench or something of the like to be offered to someone of importance. And that is precisely the issue that James is pointing out. It's only upon seeing and considering the external glamour of the rich man 
that attention and preference is given to him. It's not with any consideration of his internal or spiritual state. There is no measure of piety that this crowd can claim as they show partiality to the rich man. No, this is simply fleshly favoritism. The sharp contrast in the treatment of the two men is undeniable when James speaks of them turning from the rich man to the poor man and saying, you stand over there or or sit down at my feet. And what explains this markedly different welcome to the poor man? Yet again, it's his external appearance here in his shabby clothing rather than fine clothing. No consideration of him is given beyond his apparently impoverished state and therefore he is of no value to these individuals. And again, James is using exaggeration here, setting the response back to back in order to eliminate any sly attempt to justify the treatment of the poor man. Had they not been back to back like this, you can hear the rebuttal now. Oh, I I was just having an off day. Oh, I don't treat people like that. Yeah, prove it. But with the back-to-back comparison, James removes any denial of the truth, working like a surgeon with his scalpel to reveal the heart of the issue here. What the text does not tell us is the motivation for the partiality. However, it's not hard to speculate why. It's always tempting for the people of God to not trust God to provide for them faithfully like He has promised to do using whatever means that He sees fit at whatever time He sees fit. Instead, our our flesh longs for the expedient. So So this can easily lead us to trust in the provisions of men rather than the provisions of God. The Scriptures are replete with warnings and admonitions against such And it's possible that this church was falling prey to this lack of trust in the Lord as well. Or, maybe, it was the other fleshly longing that so often haunts the church. The desire for nobility in society. The gospel calls people to a view of themselves and the world that is altogether foolish to the onlooking society. So men and women living out the gospel call can be tempted in the visitation of one who is considered noble and dignified by worldly standards to buy into the lie that maybe we can actually have both. Maybe we can be both holy and acceptable to God and give enough attention to this person of dignity so that they'll feel comfortable enough to keep coming and the world will think us dignified as well. Yeah, we must remember, brothers and sisters, this is always a lie. Paul has made this clear in saying the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we should never expect to be seen as dignified in the eyes of the world. Whatever the motivation behind the partiality to the rich man, 
James makes it clear that partiality itself is nothing less than evil. It's not a minor character flaw. It's not a simple mistake that happens here and there. It's not a guiltless product of being raised in a particular generation or culture. It belongs only to the category of sin and evil. And why? Because, according to James, partiality is inconsistent with the gospel message. Coming out of the hypothetical story, James calls our attention to just how God has chosen to work salvation in men. Verse 5, we read, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He promised to those who love Him? Here, the apostle reminds the church that the activity of God in saving men through the gospel has proven that He shows no partiality toward any type of people. When reading this, you can almost hear the echo of Paul's words when he charges the church at Corinth to consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose those who were foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might Boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. So it's abundantly clear. In the redemptive purposes of God, the effectual call of God in the gospel does not prefer any kind of supposedly superior people over others. In fact, God delights to confound the thoughts of the world and the expectations of the world by taking to Himself those who are foolish and using them to disgrace the so-called wise. Taking those who are weak and using them to embarrass the strong that stand against the Lord. And James says that God has chosen those who are poor in this world. And He has lavished on them the most invaluable riches in or beyond this universe such that the mind can't even fathom. He has made those of no earthly means recipients of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and never fading. And it pleases Him to do so because it glorifies Him. Why, why is that? Why, why is it that this makes much of God? Because it displays the inability of man to save himself and it magnifies the reality that God needs nothing from man to accomplish his will. Friends, this is the gospel message. Stated plainly, Man was created by God in His image to worship and serve Him forever. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and brought on all of humanity the curse of sin and the consequence of both physical and spiritual death. Now, 
when men and women are born, they are born not in perfect fellowship and communion with God, but they are born hostile enemies of God who created us. And they're accountable to Him as the righteous judge for every sin that flows from their wicked heart that they were born with. And the worst part about it? You can do nothing about this situation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. You had nothing, no life, no breath, no righteousness of your own to stand before God, and He has given you everything in Christ. Life and the fullness of treasures laid up in His kingdom for you. That is the good news of the gospel. And concerning the reach of this gospel... What, what kind of people should receive this good news? Peter makes unmistakably clear in Acts 10, God shows no partiality. Therefore, the issue becomes abundantly clear when James brings the indictment, but you have dishonored the poor man. And I would be remiss at this point if I did not point out that the command that James is setting forth here to show no partiality applies to more than just favoring the rich, friends. That was the context and the situation that James was addressing, but the theological principles he brings out in this text apply to any and all forms of partiality of peoples that professing Christians would harbor in their hearts and mind. Partiality of gender, Culture, level of education, race, and any number of other forms of partiality. Concerning any of these, James would call us to see that partiality is antithetical to the gospel message. So if you harbor it, you may not really understand the gospel. Going on in verse 8, James begins to show that partiality is inconsistent not just with the gospel message, but with the God of the gospel. Some may propose that James is advocating in his hypothetical story for a preference of the poor over the rich. But that is not a good understanding either of James' writing here or of any of the other texts that we've mentioned so far this morning. And upon reading verse 8, we get a more full picture of just what James wants the church to aim for. He desires that love would be shown to all types of people. Not just that partiality would be avoided, but that effort to care for all types of people would be pursued. James really writes verse 8, verse eight to head off any argument about the indictment that he's raised against the church. He says, 
If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Expecting those receiving his letter to claim that they were only expressing love toward their neighbor who only happens to be rich. So so really we're fulfilling the, the law. Really we're acting in obedience to God. Acting in accord with the verses that we read in Leviticus just a moment ago. And the apostle says, if you're really fulfilling the royal law, you're doing well. As to say, keep it up. Full speed ahead, brothers. However, knowing the true condition of their hearts, he adds, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Then James shows them the magnitude of their sin in violating the law. For in transgressing it, they transgress God himself. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So he says, just remember, if you have shown partiality, and if you have failed to love your neighbor as yourself, the poor along with the rich, the black along with the white, the ignorant along with the intelligent, Just remember, you now stand convicted and condemned under the totality of the royal law. But one may ask, as I certainly have, why is this the way it works? Why why is it that one sin against God warrants a guilty verdict concerning all the laws of God? That's definitely not the way our governmental laws work. And that's a good question to ask. One that James answers for us in verse 11. He says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Therefore, you can see that the Bible doesn't support an itemized kind of view of sin where you commit this sin or that and have this specified level of guilt before God. No, friends. James shows that the level of guilt you incur from violating the commands of God is not related to the significance of the command itself. The level of guilt that you incur is related to the significance of the character of God Himself. You see, the commandments are not random arbitrary rules that God has given for one purpose or another. The commandments of God are elements of His character that He calls His people to imitate. The commandments of God show us who He is and what He's like. They issue from God as a revelation of His character. Therefore, to violate the law at any point is to rebel against the character and nature of God. This is why God can say, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and expect His people to know how to pursue likeness to Him. We have only to look at His law to see what His holy nature is like. Therefore, when we look to His law, 
And we find there the command to love your neighbor as yourself. What you're really reading is the impartiality of God in His love for all types of people that we are called to imitate. Because God has an intense love for His elect in every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. And He is working in them who have been made in His image but are marred by the fall to restore that image in full and so draw from their lips the praise that John says they will render to Him. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is who God is. It is what He does. So James' point stands. Those who hold faith are not to show partiality because partiality is inconsistent with the very nature of our loving God. From there, James issues a final command saying in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Having built a case for seeing and engaging people from a distinctively biblical worldview, James tells us that we are to be ever mindful that we will be judged by the law of liberty. Yet, our submission to the law of the Lord will be well embraced only when we see it as just that. Liberated. We do well here to recall Paul's words in Galatians 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Rightly seen and obeyed by the Christian, the commands of the Lord are the furthest thing from oppressive. In line with the character and will of God, the commands of God free or liberate one to live out the kingdom of God here and now. While we don't yet experience the fullness of the kingdom, an understanding of and a humble submission to the law of God provides us with a God-exalting kingdom paradigm with which we can live our lives in the present age. And what James brings into focus here at the end of our passage in the most solemn fashion is that this paradigm is necessary for the Christian if we expect to receive mercy at the end of the present age on the day of judgment. This is because according to the apostle, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So the the love that we've just been instructed to pursue without partiality, that's the connection here. The love that we've just been encouraged to pursue without partiality is epitomized by the specific act of showing mercy. James says it in the negative here, but you'll remember that Jesus says it in the positive sense in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. However, the Bible makes it very clear that man is naturally violent and vindictive. 
not merciful. So how? How? In the face of this most somber statement of James, how can we expect to be able to meet the requirements necessary to receive mercy from God? We must develop a Sermon on the Mount kind of perspective. A, a kingdom paradigm, if you will. The way this happens for the believer is simply by seeing Jesus, the one who perfectly embodies the Sermon on the Mount. In, in beholding Him, we see one who has every right not to show mercy, but in His incomprehensible love, He tempers His rightful justice with unequaled mercy toward vile sinners like you and me. Then, in considering what He's done for us, we're compelled to pass along what's been lavished on us. We show mercy out of the overflow of the immeasurable mercy that Christ has shown us. Recognizing that, that we stand on no higher ground, possess no greater, greater righteousness than any other person, are, are every bit as corrupt and depraved and guilty before God as any man. Recognizing all of that, those who truly hold the faith in Christ, James says, will love much and act mercifully much because they have been loved much and shown mercy much by a God who would have been totally righteous not to. Pray with me.